Some songs you want to remind yourself of more than others, and that's one. That's a daily important reminder about God's mercy towards sinners like us. Let's go to our merciful God in prayer. Father, we are grateful that you save sinners, those who are willing to humble themselves and to admit their need and their sin and their need for a Savior. Father, thank you for that you opened our hearts to, to believe that and to trust in Christ. We do thank you for your word as well, your wonderful word that uh, helps us to, to know how we can walk in a manner that's worthy of knowing you and a manner that pleases you. And so we desire that that would be the end result tonight from our study. Be our teacher in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, we are in Psalm 119. No surprise there. Verses 97 to 104, I think we would all say that education is something important. We were all educated at some level. Most parents certainly want their children to be educated. They want their children to learn how to read and write and do math and so on. I'm from those old generations, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic, you know, that was pretty much what you needed. But we do recognize a huge problem in today's educational institutions, and that is the fact that, tragically, there is little to no respect for biblical truth in our public or government-run educational system. I'm also of the generations that remember something different than that in the early grades. I mean, it's shocking to even think about this today, that... Uh, in first and second and third grade, I remember we learned Bible verses, and we had to say them at the, uh, at the first of every week. You know, Mondays, we would take turns coming to the front and saying a Bible verse. Public school. I don't think they do that anymore uh, in the schools. Very little respect for biblical truth. It's tragic, as James Boyce puts it, It's tragic because the Bible is the source of all true scholarship. Now, our passage tonight makes the same point. It just puts it in different terms. The Bible is the source of all true scholarship for sure, but in our passage, the focus is the Bible is the source of all true wisdom. So it is verses 97 to 104. And as you know, this psalm is known for its acrostic arrangement. We say that every time just to remind you of that, that every stanza, every eight verses, all the verses within a particular stanza begin with the same successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. You don't see it in English, you only see it in the Hebrew text itself. This passage is the mem passage, M-E-M, the letter mem. And as you would probably guess, it's the letter that makes our sound M, okay? Now, this Hebrew letter, M, sometimes is used to introduce uh, like an exclamation, uh, an exclamation of wonder. It could be an exclamation of indignation. If you look in our text, in this psalm, it's not indignation. It's used twice that way uh, as an exclamation of wonder. You see it in verse 97. It's translated, oh, how? And then it occurs again in verse 103. In the version I'm using, in most versions, it's just how instead of oh how. But it's the same mem. It's an exclamation of wonder. Oh, how wonderful something is and so forth. 
Now, the remaining verses, it's not used that way, but in the remaining verses, that letter is connected to a, a preposition, and it's the preposition men, M-I-N. That preposition, as you can hear, begins with the Hebrew letter mem, and <clears throat> so that helps accomplish all these verses beginning with that letter because all the others begin with this preposition that starts with an M. And the preposition is used to signify different things within this stanza, things like comparison and separation and even source. But in this stanza, we'll call it the mem stanza, the author is continuing his proclamation of something that's been continuous through Psalm 119, and that's the sufficiency of God's Word. That's the theme of all the stanzas at some level. It's just that in these eight verses, that sufficiency is characterized, as I said, before as wisdom. It's the wisdom that's available from God to God's people through God's Word, God's wisdom. And before we get into it, I just want to remind you that uh, other biblical writers knew about this, you know, God's wisdom. Moses knew about this wisdom. Listen to what he told the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. He said this, Moses told the people, verse 5 of Deuteronomy 4, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as my Lord God commanded me. So God gave him truth. Moses gave the people truth. So he says in verse 6, so keep and do those things, the statutes and the commandments, for that is your wisdom in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, wow. Surely this great nation is a wise people. What would make them wise? The truth that God had given Moses, that Moses passed on to the people. So we're going to go through this stanza that focuses on wisdom. There's something to take note of this stanza. It's a very striking characteristic of this stanza. There are no petitions, no requests in this stanza. That's different. He's been praying along the way for different things and for help. This is not one of those stanzas. This is a very uplifting stanza. This is a a, a doxological stanza. This is a stanza filled with joy, the joy of love for God's law. It almost makes you wonder, can this be the same author, the same poet who's been writing all these other stanzas? We've seen him sunken in despair in previous stanzas. Not this stanza. Is it the same writer? Yes, it is. And the reason for the change is precisely what this poet is now praising God for, the wisdom contained in God's Word. And he's enthralled with this, enthralled with the truth, enthralled with the wisdom that's found in the truth. Now, for outlining purposes... Here's the approach we're going to take tonight. We're going to find that the author is an example of us, to us, in two ways. He's an example to us in two ways. Here's the first one, number one. He's an example of the right passion, the right passion. In verse 97, the author explodes with passion. It's that letter mem, oh, how I love your law. And the Hebrew word for love here includes the idea of longing for something. Oh, how I long for your law. It includes the idea of having an affection for something or someone. And it's the kind of longing that's accompanied with a commitment 
to that something or someone that he's longing for. So all that's wrapped up in that Hebrew word love, longing for and committed to something. And what was it that he longed for so passionately here? It's the law, which is the Hebrew word in this case, Torah. It's the Torah, T-O-R-A. The Torah, a broad general word for the revelation of God. So this term means more than just laws, plural. The Torah includes laws. It's more than just rules. It's broader. It means the whole of God's written revelation, including the warnings, including the promises, including the blessings, including the commandments, including the judgments, all of it. This psalmist is rejoicing even in the commandments and the warnings of the Bible. I love it. C.S. Lewis tried to capture something about the language here. He said this, this is the language of a man ravished by a moral beauty. If we cannot at all share his experience, we shall be the losers. We need to be like this man. He's an example to us. We need this kind of passion for truth. And 97 goes on to present what what grows this passion. What is it that grows it? He says, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all day. And that term meditation means musing. It's a very uh, diligent contemplation of something so that you're absorbing what you're musing on. You're absorbing what you're contemplating. You could put it this way. This author was saturating his soul with Scripture. Thoroughly internalizing it, saturating his heart, his mind with it. What an example to us of the right kind of passion. Well, we find here that there are two very important results of that kind of passion. Two important results of this soul-saturated passion for truth. And there'll be the same result in our experience. The first one is this kind of passion results in wisdom. It results in wisdom. Without that kind of passion, just to treat the Bible as, a, as any other book and, you know, really don't read it that much, we, we don't get the wisdom from it. But when we saturate our soul with it, we do. Now, in general, what the author is going to do here is to show us now that his mind that is so saturated with truth, so sharpened by the Word of God, that his mind was keener than all the minds of even smart people whose minds are sharpened differently, people whose minds are sharpened by the philosophies of the world. In particular, he's going to compare himself with three kinds of persons here. But before we look at them, let me tell you something to clarify something. As he compares himself to these three different kinds of people, three different kinds of situations, Don't take what he says as an indication of arrogance, that he's patting himself on the back. No, he will make it clear that the wisdom he possessed was only because he saturated his soul with the Word of God. That was it. So with that clarification, let's note how this writer's possession of biblical wisdom was proven in three contexts of real life. First of all, here's one real-life context that he saw the difference in 
His wisdom was proven in the context of hostility. In other words, he had more wisdom than his opponents. He calls them here his enemies in verse 98. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they're ever mine. Now, the essential Hebrew idea in the Hebrew term wiser and wisdom is the skill of being able to adapt what you know to what you actually do. That's one way to describe what it means to be wise. You have that skill to adapt knowledge to what you do and how you live. That's the kind of wisdom that God's Word imparts. It's a wisdom that's practical. It's a wisdom that's uh, ethical. I am so old school. I've been teaching with an iPad for about two or three years now. I was about to swipe, and I started to lick my finger to swipe the iPad, you know, like it was pages of paper. That's an old habit, hard to die. I don't need to lick my finger here. Get the spit off my finger, just a moment. Sorry for the live stream people out there. It's a wisdom that's practical. The skill that's necessary for practical action. So he's talking about the people of the world. The hostile world. The people of this world who oppose God. And the people who are in this world who oppose God's people. They think they're wise. But in reality, they're not. Remember what Romans 1, 21 and following say, you know, as it paints that picture of the depravity of the world. It talks about lost people of the world. It says in Romans 1, 21 that they, they did not honor God. They don't do that. They don't give thanks to God, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. Now, this author is not necessarily thinking of particular people. In other words, I'm sure he had personal enemies. He's not necessarily thinking of particular enemies who might have been a personal threat to him. He's thinking more about the hostile world and all the people of the world. And he's thinking about the skill that all those people who oppose God have. They have a skill of manipulating truth. They have a skill of manipulating circumstances just to their own advantage. And in that skill, they might be very shrewd. They might be very smart. They might call that wise. But the problem is that skill that they have to sort of use the things of this world, the circumstances, the philosophies of this world to their own advantage, that skill and that shrewdness is at best for this life only. That's why Jesus gave this profound kind of statement and warning in Matthew 16, 26. Remember he said this in Matthew 16, 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? The soul is eternal, but the things of this world are temporary. So the shrewdness that goes along with worldly thinking is just a temporary shrewdness. True wisdom, though, belongs to God's people because they are in possession of something. We are in possession of the Word of God. And God's Word is a well. It's a well of wisdom that never, ever runs dry. There's examples of this besides the psalmist. Again, we don't know who it was. But we can look at the life of David, especially when he was at his best. We know that David took some steps backwards at times. 
But when David was at his best, he also exemplified this wisdom, especially early on in his life, especially in comparison to the hostile situation that he was facing. He had an enemy. It was King Saul. Let me just read some little excerpts from that, 1 Samuel chapter 18. Starts off good, 1 Samuel 18 verse 5, David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. Saul liked David. And wherever Saul sent him out, he prospered, and Saul sent him over the men of war. But over time, you know the story, something changed in Saul. The spirit of jealousy began to seize him. As a result, you know, there were there's two separate occasions where he threw a javelin at uh, David. Twice David escaped from that. You fast forward to verses 14 and 15 of the same chapter, 1 Samuel 18. You can see the change. Saul had, by this point, become afraid of David. It says in 1 Samuel 18, 14, 15, David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. When Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. So the hostility is increasing between David and Saul. It didn't help that later on, one of Saul's daughters, um, Michael, M-I-C-H-A-L, fell in love with David, married him, and guess which side she took? She took David's side. And that sealed the deal as far as Saul being hostile toward David, Saul being David's enemy. Now, soon after that happened, the Philistines initiated some hostilities against Israel. And here's what we read. This is now verse 30 of 1 Samuel 18. Then the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle, and it happened as often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul. So his name was highly esteemed. He had a wisdom that Saul certainly didn't have. He had a wisdom that the skilled Philistine leaders and war leaders didn't have. So back to Psalm 119, our psalmist was wise like that. Now, he's not saying something here. He's not saying, I can meet these hostile people and the people of the world on their own terms. I am smart enough and wise enough to outsmart worldly enemies on their own terms. He doesn't say that. It's rather that those people had set themselves against God's law. They considered themselves to be superior to God's law, but the psalmist knew at the end of the day, he was wiser they were, all because of his knowledge of and submission to God's word. So his wisdom that resulted from that passion for the word, his wisdom was proven in the context of hostility. It was proven in a second context. It was proven in the context of academics. Academics. There are very educated people in the world. Don't get me wrong and don't get the psalmist wrong here. But biblical truth has a wisdom that's beyond earthly academics and education. So he says in verse 99, I have more insight than all my teachers. Again, don't read this as arrogance. The term translated insight is a synonym then for wisdom. Here it's the synonym that emphasizes discernment discernment. He's saying that he possessed more discernment 
than all those who were in the world that were characterized as intellectuals. And we, there are those. Even though those intellectuals did have knowledge, they do have knowledge. Even though the intellectuals of the world were very much smarter than this author on many subjects. I mean, that's reality today when it comes to subjects, when it comes to math or anthropology or chemistry or physics or biology and so on. There are those in the world, worldly people, who can quickly squelch believers who try to do battle with them on the grounds of mere academics and cleverness. So the psalmist is not saying he had more knowledge than his teachers. He would agree that a lot of his teachers were a lot smarter. But the Bible gave him more discernment than they had. How? Well, I can tell you something. Fallen man is not born with this kind of insight and wisdom. So what made the man wise? It had to come from the outside. More literally, it had to come from above. Do you remember what James says in James chapter 3, verse 17 about wisdom? James 3, 17, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. Wisdom from above, that's what the psalmist is saying. He had wisdom from above. That's what made him wise, the wisdom that came from a divine source, the truth of God. And he confirms it at the end of verse 99. Why was he more wise than all of his smart teachers? Even if he failed some of the exams along the way. (laughs) Verse 99, for your testimonies are my meditation. He had been taught many things by many teachers, just like all of us. It was something else that made him wise. Constant meditation upon God's testimonies. It gave him true discernment. So the truth is not, it's not saying that the Bible makes us smarter than people in the world or smart like the world or smart in facts so that we can keep up with the world. It makes us wise. It gives us discernment. Just another quote from you, one of the commentators, uh, he's got a great two-volume commentary on the Psalms, uh, John Phillips. He says this, the Bible does not aim at making us clever, it aims at making us right. Now, I can give you the classic example of this, it's Jesus himself. I took you through a little bit of David's life. Just think about Jesus' earthly life. He, he entered human life at Bethlehem, grew up in that home. Fast forward, you see him then as a boy, what age? Got to know that. It's on the test. Twelve, thank you. Twelve years old, sitting before the, the learned teachers in Jerusalem. Listen to Luke chapter 2, 46 and 47. 12-year-old, after three days, they found him in the temple. The parents were looking for him, you know, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers, meaning his wisdom. 
And it didn't stop there. Luke 2 verse 52 goes on to say that he even became more wise. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Of course, Jesus knew all the truth. That's why he, when he spoke, it says in the New Testament, he spoke with such authority, not like their own scribes. And because of that, the Jews marveled at him when they heard him. We learn that in the Gospel of John in our study of John 7, verse 15, verse, chapter 7, verse 15. The Jews were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated, meaning in their schools? The answer is he had the knowledge of truth. And our psalmist is saying that he had a measure of that same knowledge of Scripture, and it made him discerning and wise. So what about us? It is still true today, you see, that the people who have minds sharpened by the Word of God, they have a wisdom that worldly knowledge can never give anybody. Again, I'm not saying there's nothing to be learned from all the secular teachers we may have in this world. There's always much to learn from smart people. The point in our passage is the comparison of spiritual wisdom with worldly learning. The wisdom of God goes beyond anything we could ever learn just from mere secular teachers. So his wisdom was proven in those two contexts. It was proven in the, in the uh, it resulted in, in this uh, the wisdom resulted in this proof in the context of hostility, in the context of academics, and it was proven in another context. Third, it was proven in the context of experience. There are those, due to their age, who've had their minds sharpened through the years by experience. Yet, verse 100 I understand more than the aged. That term translated understand, especially in the form that's used here, has this connotation of being attentive to consider something diligently. He had been attentive in considering truth, and that led the psalmist to comprehending even more than those who were older than he was. Now, some translations translate that word aged, translated the ancients. I don't like that translation, you know, the ancients, because it's referring to those who are older. Some translations say the elders. It's just referring, it's a word that's referring to those who by their age and experience They do deserve the respect of others. They do demand the respect of others. Now, in that culture, by the way, in the author's day, it was especially true, authority would always be invested in those who were the elders. The authority was given to those who, by virtue of their age and consequently their greater experience in life, were best fitted to be the governors and the teachers You get a a real explicit illustration of that in the book of Job. You know, Job had all those counselors that weren't so good. In Job 32, verse 4, you get to Elihu, 
And here's what it says about him. Job 32, verse 4. He had waited to speak. I'm not saying anything. He had waited to speak to Job because they, the other counselors, were years older than he. So he gave them respect. They get to say what they want to say first, and they get to say whatever they want to say, however long it takes. Now, obviously, it is true that in a general sense, those who are older do have much they can teach younger people. It's true. But one of the inherent dangers that older people must guard against is the problem of truth being replaced by tradition. Tradition. Not that all traditions are always bad. It's just that the person whose thinking is controlled by the Bible, even as an older person, they'll be able to distinguish what are good traditions and what are bad traditions, what do we need to change in, what do we need to grow in. Wisdom does that, the truth of God's Word. Now, you'll remember that Jesus confronted the Jewish elders of his day for this very issue, the older, wiser, more experienced leaders. He had to confront them about their traditions, especially the tradition that had turned the the Sabbath day into a burden. So the point in Psalm 119 is that to be old does not necessarily mean that one is wise. A person can grow older in more error. A person can grow older and be more entrenched in traditions that are not necessarily good. So like I've already said, this is not the testimony of some young, smart whippersnapper, you know. Some young, smart, young student, you know, who thinks he has all the answers and his teacher doesn't know anything. He doesn't see himself that way. So in verse 100, he affirms once again that, no, it's not me. The source of my deeper wisdom was God's truth. Verse 100, because I have observed your precepts. That's it. And he didn't just know God's word. This is the saying. He did apply it to what he knew in his life. He observed the truth. He obeyed it. Therefore, it was the combination, you see, of knowing and obeying that resulted in wisdom. So, I have to admit, according to verse 100, old is not necessarily better. You might say, well, yeah, but isn't what he saturated his soul with something very old, and it's even older now, the precepts, the Torah? He says precepts here, yeah, they're old. But the Bible doesn't command our respect just because it's old. It commands our respect because it's right. And it's divine. And the knowledge gained from the Bible is something that's eternal. The knowledge that we find in Scripture is right. It's the same on the day of our deaths as it was when we learned it somewhere along in our life. It doesn't change. It's timeless. It has always been true and always will be true. And we can't say that about any other knowledge. We can't say that about all the things that people have studied and all the things they've, they've gained knowledge in, of all the things they've gained experience in, 
Advancements are being made in different categories all the time. Just think of the advancements in aviation or electronics and so on. In each of those fields, like in any other field, knowledge keeps increasing and changing and and you have to maybe change something that you did or believed before because of new evidence and so forth. Right and wrong in that field can change. So the doctors here, I don't know, I guess I could quiz you whether you're still using leeches or not. I don't know, but I've heard there actually are a couple of uses of them out there. But, but by and large, there's been a lot of advancement made, you know. I think of my own field, my background, pharmacology. I remember when I was studying pharmacology, all of it the second time to get licensed the second time in California to go through all the boards a second time, you know, many years later after the first time. And much of my notes that I had from pharmacy school and the first round of boards a lot of things in my notes were outdated because new discoveries were made. The truth of Scripture is not like that. It never, ever changes. And it, when we are passionate for it, like this man, when we saturate our souls with it, we will gain wisdom, and it'll be proven in all the various contexts of life that we'll find ourselves in. This man just listed three. Well, there's a second result of being passionate about the truth. The passion results uh, in wisdom, but it also results in obedience. Now, remember way back at verse 9, that familiar memory verse, how can a young man keep his way pure? And he answered it, by living according to your word. That's another way of saying by obeying it, by obeying it. Well, our author is essentially saying the same thing in verses 101 and 102. Conceptionally, these two verses are parallel. Both are stressing the disciples' pursuit now of living according to God's Word, which means being obedient to it. Now, he puts it in negative terms, verse 101. My obedience is put in negative terms here. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your Word. Evil way is a very comprehensive term. It includes any kind of evil, all kinds of evil, so he's committed to avoiding every form of evil so that he can keep God's words, so he can obey it. This is really evidence of his wisdom here. I mean, true wisdom will be proven in all the various contexts of life, but it'll be, it'll be expressed, expressed very clearly in this in obedience. Otherwise, we don't, we're not wise. It just means this man was choosing to live his life in light of another verse he knew about, Proverbs 4, verse 14. Proverbs 4, 14, do not enter the path of the wicked and do not proceed in the way of evil men. So the fact is, the keeping, he says, of God's word is something incompatible with treading the evil path. So Treading an evil path is incompatible then with wisdom. We cannot be lax about sin and worldliness and expect to profit from the use of God's Word. So the author's passion was expressed in this, his genuine pursuit of a life that was separated from sin. 
And that separated life then goes along with having true wisdom. The two go together. If someone's wise, then they're seeking to shun evil. Now, he says it a different way in verse 102. They're parallel, but he says it just in different words. I've not turned aside from your ordinances. I remember in um, my first Hebrew class, I, it's like you, I've forgotten much, but I remember certain Hebrew words more than others. For whatever reason, I remember this one. It's the Hebrew word S-U-R, sur. And it's, it's the one translated turn aside here. Very important term in the Old Testament. To turn aside, to sur, from God's ordinances means to neglect them, to disobey them. Therefore, in the Old Testament, the combination of this verb with that preposition I told you about at the beginning that starts with the, the letter M, and it's the preposition men, M-I-N, sur and men combined is found in Scripture at times in tandem as a vehicle for expressing apostasy, apostasy. Find it many places, Exodus 32, verse 8. They have quickly turned aside from the way I commanded them. They apostatized. Judges 2, verse 17. They played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments. Jeremiah 17, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and whose heart turns away from the Lord. A heart that turns away from the Lord is a heart of apostasy. So the opposite then, conversely, not to turn aside is a way of affirming something positive then. Not turning aside is a way of affirming our steadfastness before the Lord. Our diligence to be steadfast in how we live our lives before Him. And that's precisely what this psalmist was objectively affirming in verse 102, the first part there. By the way, he's not saying he lived a perfect life. He's not saying there was never a moment in his life that he didn't turn aside his heart, his actions, something. What he's saying is the rule of his life had been that he had not done that. The character and aim of his life had been overall obedience and not disobedience. And he's not the only example, certainly in the Old Testament, of someone committed to this. I think of Ezra. It's one of those verses we spend a lot of time with and studying in seminary. Ezra 7, verse 10. It's very important to expository preaching. It's Ezra 7, 10. It says, Ezra had set his heart to do three things here. To study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. This is, these are marching orders for expositors. This is what we're to do. We're to set our hearts to do these three things. To study the law of the Lord, take what we learn and practice it, apply it to our own lives. We're not allowed to be hypocrites. And then to teach it. That's our job. Ezra was committed to the same thing. A rule of life, of obedience. I think of Daniel and his experience in Babylon. And here's, here's a man that, I mean, it didn't take him long in his life to come to this place. He was a young man. 
He made up his mind as a young teenager to be this way, that he was going to take his stand on certain matters, live a life separated from the world. He, he determined he would not do certain things forbidden by the Word of God, even though others were doing it, even though others might think he was crazy. He purposed to be committed to God's Word. This psalmist is the same way. He was committed to that. I have not turned aside. And the idea is, I will not turn aside. He says, goes on in verse 102, for you yourself have taught me. I love it that he, that he puts his knowledge of the Word now a little bit differently. He wants to say something else about having this wisdom. God is the one teaching us in His Word. And the point of God being His teacher is actually emphasized in the Hebrew the way He wrote it. The word yourself, he's really saying, he could have just said, for you, God, have taught me. But he's really saying, you, God yourself, God himself had instilled wisdom in my heart. So he's just saying that when I studied Scripture, I, I wasn't hearing the words of other people, though God used human beings to write it. I was actually hearing something past that. I was hearing the voice of God himself. And that is still true. This is how God speaks to us. It is in and only in Scripture. That's what makes the Bible like no other book. It's God Himself speaking. You ever think about that? I mean, sometimes people, you know, lamenting the state of the world that we're in and all the sin. It's like, you know, I just want to be back in the Garden of Eden, you know, before the fall. <laughs> It was so, those tranquil days, and what made it so special is God walked with them and talked with them and taught them things, spoke to them in an intimate way. There is a sense in which this psalmist is saying, I've got that. We have that. That's what we find when we saturate our souls with Scripture. It's taking us back to a place as if we're being personally taught by God. What a reverence for God's Word this man has. So these last two verses are not saying that, you know, the best of many valuable ways you could choose from to keep your way pure, you know, one good way to consider is by knowing and studying God's Word. It's saying it's the only way. Only the law of God can show us the right path in which to walk. And we know also that it's only the Word of God that can even, by the Holy Spirit using it, empower us to live that way. The Spirit uses what we're saturating our souls with to revive us and illumine our hearts and empower us then to believe what's there and then to live by it. So all of that, just to say, this man's a great example to us of the right kind of passion. It's a passion that results in obedience. It's a passion that results in wisdom in our life. Those two go together, and that wisdom will keep coming out in the various contexts of life, whether you're at work or with your neighbors or your family, opponents of the gospel. It'll start being evidence that they don't have that wisdom that we have. What a blessing. Well, he's an example in one other way here tonight. 
Number two, he's an example of the right satisfaction. I was telling my wife that I had trouble picking the word there, satisfaction. I actually had six words, so I'm going to give them all to you. You can choose the one you like. Delight, contentment, pleasure, fulfillment, enjoyment. He's an example of the right, all of those. He's an example of the right delight. He's an example of the right contentment in his life. He's an example of the right kind of pleasure that he found, the right kind of fulfillment in his heart, the right kind of enjoyment, but yes, also the right satisfaction. And I chose that one for a reason, because it ends in I-O-N, and passion also ends in I-O-N. So now you know. We think about those kind of things, don't we, Luke? But we can put it this way. He loved the truth so much that he was completely satisfied with it. Look what he says in 103. How sweet are your words to my taste. There's that mem letter again, how. Oh, how sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I find it interesting that the word sweet also carries the connotation smooth. It went down smooth. You could translate that way. How smooth, how easily your words entered. How smooth your promises, your words were to my palate, to my taste. That's the total thought then. How palatable I find your sayings, even more so than honey to my mouth. I like honey. I like honey on warm biscuits, butter, sourdough toast with butter toasted, honey on it. You could have written this even more so than clear caro syrup to my mouth. I like that on biscuits as well, clear caro syrup, buttered biscuits. What does this sound like? sounds like some other passage. Anybody know? Psalm, a little louder, 19, thank you. Psalm 19, verse 10. He's talking about the Word of God there, and he says that it's, you know, it's, it's perfect, and, and it's whole-sided, and it brings wisdom, and makes wise the simple. It says in verse 10, they, meaning the words of God, are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. I thought of Ezra, uh, excuse me, Ezekiel. There's this verse in Ezekiel 3, verse 3, where the... He had to do something. God told him. Ezekiel 3.3, 3, he said to me, son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll which I'm giving you. And he says, then I ate it and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. Job didn't say it that way, but he, he did say something about the word of God, about eating it. Job 23 verse 12 I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. 
this is what satisfies me. What a great example to us of that. What to delight in. What brings contentment no matter what's going on in our lives? We, we can live with this sense of contentment in it and satisfaction and even pleasure, get pleasure out of it. He's an example of the right kind of pleasure. Well, he closes the stanza and he does it just by summarizing all he had said in the stanza with this, verse 104. From your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Look at the bookends. Verse 97, I love something. Verse 104, I hate something. That's intentional. How he opens and how he closes. A contrast. He loves Scripture because in it he finds understanding. That synonym insight, which all just means discernment and wisdom. And with that kind of understanding, it only makes sense that one of the effects would be a growing revulsion then of every false way, every, everything deceptive. And the false ways of the world, they're deceptive. They sound good sometimes. But that little phrase means there's a deception there. Don't get tricked. It's a scam. You can't love the truth and at the same time entertain and embrace all the many heretical and profane and sweet-sounding perspectives that are all in line with the spirit of the age. I think David says it best for me, Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight, there it is, is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day at night. Same thing. He delighted in this, and his delight was associated with saturating his soul with it, not just a little bit of, I read my verse for the day kind of thing, so I feel better. To have this kind of satisfaction, it will take that kind of soul saturation. Well, something to remember here, for us to live with this perspective, I mean, to be this way, to have the right kind of passion and to find the right kind of pleasure and delight and satisfaction, it requires, I mean, let's be honest here tonight, it requires a supernatural action on our hearts. I wasn't born this way. You weren't either. So we've got a quote here from another commentator on the Psalms, long-term commentator Kidner on the Psalms. He says, attraction to the true and revulsion against the false are for us acquired taste. We had to learn them. (laughs) I wasn't born with it. I was born with the opposite. We're born being attracted to the false and just not caring about the true. But once we've been given a taste of Scripture, there's just so much to love about it. I mean, think about it. All the distilled wisdom of the ages of eternity distilled down into this. And and it's a wisdom that speaks to all the issues of life. It tells us how to make a marriage work. It tells us how to raise our children. It tells us how to be successful in life, how to face tragedies, how to grieve. It tells us how to live forever. 
And it's just so incredible that it's made up of all these different styles by, by different human authors that God used, all these different literary styles. And, and it's so deep and so pr- profound, but another characteristic of it that's amazing is its simplicity. On one hand, it's dealing with incredibly marvelous truths, the most marvelous truths that have ever been conceived, and yet a child can grasp some things from it. And it's incredible that we can pick it up day after day after day after year after year, and we can read some of the same familiar passages over again, and it still thrills our hearts, or we can find something, discover something new, some unexplored territory maybe. It doesn't matter. We'll always find something to delight our hearts in it. So there's just something we need to remember here. We cannot allow our hearts to become indifferent to the Bible. We, we cannot allow ourselves to start entertaining thoughts that, well, it's boring and it's just not attractive to me right now. We need to read it, study it, learn it, meditate on it. And if we do, we will find it growing sweeter and sweeter to our taste. So, some questions for you tonight to kick around together as a group. Here's one. How, how do worldly people view the Bible, though? Good. Someone else? Yes, ma'am. I see that hand. It's written by men. That's a very common view. Just made up of stories. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's really good when it's right, but some of these other things are not good. It's only a good, as you said, when, I, when, I agree, when it's right in the parts I agree with. Okay. Yeah, people do quote the Bible when they don't know what it says, and they don't even know what, what they're quoting, what it really means in its context. Yeah, so I'll hand over here. Yeah, Jennifer. That's not relevant. That's a common view, especially younger generation. It's just not relevant. I mean, this thing was written when, you know? Come on, Mom. Come on, Dad. It's just so old. Yeah, it's not relevant. Yeah, Gabe? It's, 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 it's subjective. Yeah, and it, it's subjective, and your interpretation of it is subjective. You know, throw that one in, too. Yeah, right. It's a restricting rule book. It's a real downer, you know. I mean, it's, it's too restrictive. It's a killjoy. I mean, the whole purpose of the Bible is all these rules and regulations. It's just going to destroy fun and life. Yeah. Outdated. Yeah, John? It's not fun, so it's, you said sour, is that the word? Yeah, it's not sweet, it's sour. I mean, again, you, you can tell it, you know, sometimes when people visit and, and you can tell that, please get to 12 o'clock so I can get out of this place and through that madhouse lobby and out to my car where it's safe as quickly as possible. I don't know what this place is or what these people are, okay? That happens sometimes. Yeah. 
It's insufficient, that would be another one. It, it, you know, it's missing things. We, we need, I mean, it's good as far as it goes, but wow, there's so much more uh, that we need to live our lives. Besides that, this is a common one people say. It's got errors in it. Yeah, there's errors. There's contradictions in it. Now, back to what you said, they really don't know what it means when they say it and they use it. They really don't know about those things. It just, it's legend that keeps being passed. There are some things to fall in understanding seem contradictory. But when you understand the context and everything, you find out that it's not. So yeah, that's the world's, that's the world's view of all that. Along with that, let me just ask you this, since that's the world's view and the psalmist is saying something different here, especially when he says, God himself taught me. Do you keep that in mind when you're reading the Bible? I mean, do you, you actually think that as you're reading it? This is God speaking to me. We should. I mean, the people of the world obviously don't see it that way. It's written by man. It's human opinions. That's another kind of thing they would say. No. For us, it's God himself speaking to us Here's another question then. I mentioned to you that one of the problems with those older people out there is that um, sometimes you can get very entrenched in tradition of how you think and how you do something. So there's good and bad, though, about traditions. What's the good and what's the bad? Either one. What's What's a good thing about traditions? Let's start with that. What's something good about traditions? They can be very honoring, like to your parents, especially. I mean, there are some traditions in your home that your parents are propagating, you know, because they're the older people. And uh, you honor your parents by, by doing that. You honor other authorities, by the way. Yeah, Marcy. Okay. That's the biggest bad right there, that traditions can become weightier or have more authority than Scripture. And Catholicism is a good example of that, yeah. Traditions have become the most important thing. Now, we can do that in the Baptistic world as well, or the, the Basbaterian world. Um, we have traditions, you know. We have to be careful about the same thing. But that is, that is something very, very bad. Yeah. Good traditions, like holidays and whatever, good traditions help us remember things that are good to remember, that we should remember. You could even say it this way. There's something about traditions by doing something over and over that helps ingrain something in, in our hearts in our minds, in our understanding, and therefore it ingrains it in our practice somehow. We, we need that help sometimes. So it's not that traditions in and of themselves are wrong. They can actually be helpful. In fact, they're helpful in passing on truth to other generations. They can be helpful in doing that. But when they become more important than Scripture then something's going wrong. 
you know, and obviously churches have split over those kind of things, right? Over somebody tampering with a long-standing tradition, like teaching down here on the floor instead of up on the pulpit. I mean, what's going on here, you know? We have a tradition. What if I didn't wear a tie some Sunday? I mean, what would happen? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not willing to try it. I think, you know, what happens with traditions as well is we get so entrenched in them, they can make us blind to something else that we need to do that would be helpful. We don't even consider something else. Here's another question. I said that this psalmist said he hates evil. He loves the truth of Scripture. The question is... It's wrong, uh, on my notes, a wrong interrogative pronoun here. This one's corrective here. Why is Scripture important for defining evil? So he hated evil. He defined it a certain way. He's going to define it the way Scripture defines it. Why is that so important? Let me ask it this way. How is evil defined in this world? How is evil defined if someone is not defining it as Scripture? Yeah. So the fact that uh, God is the one who defines those things, is that what you were saying there? Yeah. So, you know... The creator of the universe is defining what is evil, what is right, and what is wrong. Uh, it certainly, as well, is, is prideful to think that we can define it differently and to um, go against his definitions of what is evil. But people do it. The world is ignoring God's definitions, and the world is, doesn't care about God's definitions. So yet they're going to admit that there's, well, there's evil in the world. So how are they defining it, Marcy? Yeah. We, we wouldn't define it co- correctly if God didn't show it and define it for us. And therefore, we would keep defining it other ways like what? What's the world say? Yeah, I mean, that's a way of defining, distinguishing between good and evil. Evil is something that hurts other people, okay? So if it doesn't hurt somebody else, then it can't be evil. It's just me, you know, my personal action. Yeah. The world calls it bad behavior, okay? I think you'll find the world agree with that. This is bad behavior. Badly done, Emma, badly done. Some of you will know where that's from. Thank you, Stephanie. Bad behavior, even crime, okay? Bad things are called crimes. We, we use that as well. But it's missing something. Bad behavior is called things like a violation of the laws of the state, it's an offense against humanity. Have you ever heard that? It's just, you know, it's an offense against humanity. 
I've even heard this. This is an offense against the laws of nature, you know, still ignoring God, you know. But what's missing in all that is what's bad and what's evil is not being called what? Sin. Okay. It is Scripture that tells us, it is God that tells us what is wrong with evil and what's bad about it is that it is sin. Okay. We need Scripture to do that. Only the law of God tells us what offends God and hence is sin. Last question. And we could spend an hour on this one, but we're not. We'll spend about four minutes. He ate it, he studied it, he absorbed it. It was so sweet to him. Share with us quickly, what's a passage that's especially sweet to you, sweet to your taste and your mouth? Anybody, yeah. Which one? Romans 4.8, which says? Let's read it all together. Romans 4, 8, is that you said? This is going to be sweet. Romans 4, 8. Blessed is the man, this is the right one. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Oh, that's pretty sweet. You know, I need that. Yeah. There are times I need to go back to verses like that one, in which we sang about tonight, you know, our, our sin is great, but his mercy is more. That's a very sweet verse. What's another one? What's sweet to your taste? Second Corinthians 5.17, say it or paraphrase it. New creation, we're in Christ's new creation, old things. We're new, we're new creatures, new creations. We carry around with us the, the flesh, fallen humanity, but we are new in the depths of who we are. We have a new orientation to Christ now. We have new resources in Christ. We have a new love. And we need to remind ourselves of that sometimes, yeah. Someone else, something sweet. Yeah. First Peter 5.10. Yeah. After you've suffered for a little while, God's going to do this. He doesn't say if you've suffered. He's going to say after you've suffered for a little while. And, of course, we'd like to define what little while means, but God defines that part too. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Very important to let that be sweet in your mouth during times of difficulty and trial. Yeah, yeah Sydney. Colossians 
Yeah, Colossians 3.12 is a great example of the indicative and imperative. You know, the indicative stating who we are, some facts about God or us. This is who we are. We're the chosen ones, the holy ones, the loved ones. That's who we are. That's our identity. Because of that, then we do these other things. You know, when we're seeking to live out these other things, it's not legalism. Not if we're remembering our identity as the motivation there. I've only preached one sermon here that was an hour and 10 minutes shortly after I came here. And I think it was on, it was on that verse, if I remember right. Yeah, James. Psalm Asaph, Psalm 73. Yeah, what a change in Asaph. I mean, he was spiraling down you know, envious of the wicked and and bitter and all that kind of stuff. And it says in the middle of the psalm, until I came into the sanctuary of God, you know, and I saw God, I saw the truth. And then he says, yeah, I was really a stupid beast before, you know, but now, now I, I have all this comfort. I have all this counsel in you. Yeah. Wow. One more. Sweet verse. Yeah, Gabe. Jeremiah 29, 11, great verse, a promise of God's sovereignty, and, and really it's, it's his wisdom, too, of what he does is right for our lives. Yeah. I mean, obviously, just think, I mean, there's so many we couldn't, we couldn't, we don't have time to talk about just the sweetness of John three sixteen or Romans eight twenty eight that I preached on Sunday, or, or um, I mean, Psalm 23, I mean, what, what a sweet, sweet psalm. Uh, the painting God as our loving, caring, ever faithful shepherd. Um, by the way, I've got a quote about. Did I put this quote on there? From is there one more quote from Phillips? I slipped. Sorry. I, he had a great statement about Psalm twenty-three, but how sweet it is. Listen to this. When you read that psalm. And if you can't find anything beautiful or sweet in those verses, your taste buds are terribly dulled and your eyes horribly glazed over by the tawdry glitz of our culture. I mean, if you can't find some sweetness in Psalm 23, something's wrong. Well, thanks for those guys. The Word of God is indeed sweet. John, come lead us in a closing song here. If you could all stand up and we will sing, Oh, How I Love Your Law. It's in the Psalter on page 267, and it's to the, the tune, This Is My Father's World.
how they do that and that captures the song. Let's pray together as we dismiss. Father, we thank you for your word, the change you've made in our hearts. We thank you for the confidence we can have in your timeless truth. We confess that we, we vary, we turn from our rule of life, our commitment in moments of time, and, and we're aware of that, and we're so weak. But in you, we're made strong, and you forgive us, and we're so grateful for that, that you care for your people that way. So just instill within us a desire to saturate our souls day after day after day with the wisdom that's in your word. In Christ's name, amen.